everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, uh, the good Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. Welcome to the show as always as my co-host to this, our podcast, One Nation Under Whiskey. And welcome to 2020. Welcome indeed. It is, uh, it's a new year. We now live in the future. We do. What's happening now is actually happening now, now. It is. It is. I expect my Jetsons car to be in my driveway when I, mm-hmm. when I walk out my front door. Mm-hmm. I, I have the Jetsons cleaning robot, so that's, that's not bad. That feels a little bit like living in the future. Is that Rosie? Uh, we just call ours D-Bot. D- we call her D-, D for short. D-Bot or D-Butt? Yeah. Uh, only the bot with us. Only B-O-T. The, oh, B-O-T. You yeah. down with B-O-T? You know me. <laughs> I have to go back in my head brains and remember your inside jokes. They're not natural for me. So I'm like, oh, what did I not say the last time that I got shouted at for not saying? So, yes. Well, well I, I think part of the reason why some of them aren't natural to you is you weren't born in this country. It's true. But but I, I tried to... As you remind me... Every single time you protest my existence in this country. <laughs> well, you know, I like... You're not from here, yeah. is what you always say. Well, I, I, I like Americans who, uh, <laughs> who aren't captured. <laughs> yeah, each time you say, Jason, you weren't born here. Maybe it's time you went back to where you were born. Yeah. That's... Yeah, I didn't say anything yeah, wrong. <laughs> Just go back to your own country. Jeez, all I all I try to do is love, and and all I get is nothing but resistance. Mm. Well, that's called that's that's that, I'm not going to go there. It's a new year, Jason, and I need to be less filthy. I need to um, not think with my rep, reptile brain. <laughs> I need by, by my reckoning, this is the thirty first consecutive time you've had this new year's resolution 31st yeah i figure you've been doing this since you were 12 years old since we've both agreed that your level of comedy plateaued at 12 (laughs) they're your key demographic (laughs) well this really presses the point that you were not a math professor because that (laughs) would have made me 43 years old and sir i am 46 yeah i did i got my fours turned around there (laughs) yes yes my bad yeah, 34th consecutive. Okay, now that we have analyzed that joke to death, let's move on to another one. You know what makes jokes even funnier? When you analyze them. Absolutely. And you just tear them oh, apart. I've always found that. Absolutely. And especially when you get a key detail wrong, yes, yes. I think it makes the joke funnier. Oh my gosh. I, really, I don't think that means the joke falls flat on its face at all. I love explaining jokes to people. And explaining it to them all the time while they're saying, no, I got it. And I just, no, I don't think you did. Let me explain this to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it, it's more clever than you thought it was. No, let me explain why it was more clever. Yes. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Oh, boy. So, yeah. so we're, we're, in, we're in vacation period here. Normally you and I open an episode by saying, oh, how have you been and where have you been and mm-hmm. what have you seen? But really, we've seen the inside of our houses with our families and probably a little bit of holiday TV. A little bit. Yeah. You know, you know what I did? 
I don't know if I don't know if you've shown this movie to your boys. I'm guessing you're not, because to be quite honest, I should not have shown this movie to our girls. Uh, the first night of Hanukkah, I wanted to have a family movie night, and so we watched uh, the Hebrew Hammer together. Ah, okay. It's not not age appropriate. Well, there's a lot of f bombs, and uh, you know the. And there's there's some n words in there that I don't I really don't okay. like. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, it's uh, yeah. Well done, Joshua. And well done. Have you ever shopped at um, Have you ever shopped at the store BJ's? Uh, I don't think so. You've I've heard of it though. Seen, yeah, yeah. The well, the wine and liquor people. No, it's the BJ's is like a um, it's like a Sam's or a Costco. Ah, okay. Or, I wondered why yeah. they. Okay, okay. Yeah. I saw the big news that in some states they were getting liquor licenses. Ah, but, yes, okay. Yes, yes, yes. So they're like a Sam's. Okay, that makes sense. Exactly. And so in the movie, there was a mention of a BJ's, <laughs> and I'm not talking about the store. Um, okay, they weren't they weren't all going out for matzo balls at BJ's. Yeah, just getting economy size. Matza boxes of matza. No. <laughs> okay. But it's such a funny and fun <laughs> movie. And Mimi loved it at first and then she kind of got bored. Uh-huh. Um, Delma hung around. She really liked it. But Delma, I think, hangs around because she just, she loves hearing swear. She's like, when's the next swear going to come? <laughs> and, uh, you know, the movie does not disappoint as far as the, the, the you know, the, the, the number of swears that are told. How did Haida feel about this being the first night of Hanukkah family movie? She was cool with it. I mean, there were a couple of times where she was like, oh my God, oh my God. And <laughs> it, she, she just said the quiet parts out loud. Internally, I was saying, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> But I think, you know, they're still kind of young-ish, 11 and 13, so some things are still going over their heads a little uh-huh. bit. But, you know. uh-huh. I would say this should have been a PG-15 or 16, and, you know, 11 and 13. You know, I'm a oh, progressive parent. Yeah, tomorrow and I talk about this all the time. 1980s PG movies. Yeah, are are not PG. A, a couple of weeks before the break, we mm-hmm. actually showed our boys Indiana Jones. Yeah, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. We showed them the first indie movie. Yeah, and we tried to tell them this is going to have some some scares in it. You you say Delma likes the swears. Uh, my boys hate the scares, and God, so just like you. Meanwhile, my dog hates the stairs. It's, it's a remarkable world in which we live. And, um, and so we tried to tell them, like, there'll, there'll be some, some scares in this. And, and Kai, the 12-year-old, said, oh, you mean jump scares? And I said, yeah, you know, something that makes you jump in your seat. And it was interesting because as they were watching it, there would be these little jump moments. Uh-huh. But the special effects are so poor that they were mostly just kind of looking wow. at like plastic skeletons dangling with spears through their eyes. Man, I've got to disagree with you hard on this. I'll when let you continue. When did you last see this movie? Exactly eight days ago. <laughs> I'm not lying to you. I tur- I'm, I'm flicking through. I don't, I don't remember if it was Netflix or what it was. I think yeah, it was Yeah, we've been watching them on Netflix. And it, it was there. I said, <laughs> oh, I've got to watch this. And it was brilliant. I don't remember the, 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 the you know, the uh, special effects were not 
terrible. They actually fixed something. Now, you may or may not remember uh-huh. when that movie first came out and Indy <laughs> goes into the well of souls where all the snakes are. Welcome to One Nation under Indiana Jones. Continue. <laughs> There's a scene where he comes face to face with a cobra. Mm-hmm. In the original movie, you actually see the reflection of the cobra because there's actually a a, a, a piece of plate glass between oh, them. Oh, interesting. And so... Interesting. Some movie magic here. Yeah, and, and so the earlier ones, you'd actually, mm. if you were quick, you would see the reflection of the cobra in that plate glass. Now, the version on Netflix, that that reflection is gone. So they've cleaned it up a little bit, kind of like the, you know, kind of like the Starbucks cup in the final season of, of Game of Thrones. That's a famous one. Um, quickly became famous. But, but, but then, but think back yeah. to the very opening of the movie when he's running away from that gigantic rolling mm-hmm. rock. Yeah. That, that rock bounces as it's coming after him. It's massive with a huge amount of weight and you actually see it bounce in moments it's clearly so light if you it's can't laughable. suspend disbelief <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> effects are terrible that's all i'm saying it's an amazing movie however the reason yeah. i tell you this yeah is the night before the first night of hanukkah as you might call it first night of hanukkah eve <laughs> we <laughs> I know you've called it that many times. Never. We That's air, watched... air of Hanukkah. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> Chef's kiss. We watched The Temple of Doom. Mm. Yeah, it's go on. It's a terrible movie. Oh, thank God you said that. Terrible it was movie. so bad. So terrible. And Kalima. And my wife and I afterwards yeah. were saying... That was really terrible. And I said, yes, but you can't get to the third movie without going through the second. And she said, and she might have been right, can't you, though? And, mm. and you know, what does the Temple of Doom bring to the, 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 the triptych, it, right? I'm not including Crystal Skull at this point. It, it doesn't. I mean, the Temple of Doom doesn't inform either... Raiders of the Lost Ark or The Last Crusade. Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade, I think there is a bit of a connection there because you're dealing with some God elements, whether it's the uh, the, the Hebrews with the with the Ark or, um, you know, what is it, the, the Holy Grail? I mean, there's a bit of Judeo-Christianity kind of thing going on. Now, that, that's not to say what was going on in Temple of Doom. You know, that's a different... Religion that's that's the Kali would you know sort of the Hollywood version of Kali. So it all has to do with there's a religiosity to it. But you could just take Temple of Doom and flush it down the goddamn toilet where it belongs, <laughs> and use the crystal skull as the plunger to make sure it goes down, and just yeah. keep the the first and the third movie, and then we're all happy as as <laughs> as people as humans living on uh, this place that I like to call Spaceship Earth. So here's the here's the final point I want to make, and mm. then we'll we'll start talking about Wait, why is, we have a whiskey podcast. Oh, this is a whiskey podcast. Yeah, yeah okay. you and I talk about movies all the time. This yeah. is just an extension of again <laughs> what we do when we're hanging out together. But one of the things that struck me was when Crystal Skull came out, uh-huh. the number of people who love Indiana Jones 
who railed against how unbelievable Crystal Skull's plot is mm. and was. I'm like, but you lived through the Temple of Doom. <laughs> the, the Temple of Doom has no plot and is completely unbelievable. But now you're going to get upset about the Crystal Skull. I think it comes back to what you were just saying a moment ago about the, the Rolling Rock yeah. in the opening of the very first movie. It's a suspension of disbelief yeah. Yeah. for an era of storytelling, like those 1930s cinema serials where yeah. you would go yeah, and yeah, you would yeah. watch and be some unbelievable cliffhanger and you would think, oh, the hero is done for this time. Mm. And then you would go back the next week just to see how he met his death, yeah. only for him to escape. Yeah, right? that's, a, that's how the original Batman series... Mm-hmm. Right, right? It, yeah. right it, it's true all the way through cinematic history. Mm. So when you then get to something ridiculous, and this is a spoiler if anybody hasn't seen The Crystal Skull... Um, <laughs> This does happen in the early part of the movie, so it's, it's a small spoiler without being a huge spoiler. Indiana Jones climbs inside the fridge yeah. to survive the nuclear explosion. <laughs> That's right. And everybody said, That's so ridiculous. Like, that would never work in a million years. I can't buy into this movie. Mm-hmm. That, to me, that was to completely undermine what those 1930s movie serials were all about. Right, it's it's okay for him to survive a nuclear explosion in a fridge. It is because yes, agreed. It is ridiculous and it is a suspension of disbelief. The whole reason why I hated that movie had nothing to do with oh, that's <laughs> that's unbelievable. That's not unbelievable. It was just slow. The plot was weak. Shy LaBeouf couldn't have been more annoying. And here's the thing: I actually really, really like Shy LaBeouf. I just didn't like him in this movie and maybe it was just the movie um i love harrison ford but he's old and it it (laughs) seemed it seemed like one of those movies where it was going to be a passing of the torch and and you come to the end of the movie and you're like oh please don't you know like don't pass the torch like just (laughs) let it be gone but here's here's okay here's my biggest question for you jason do you think Ali Walker, today's, today's <laughs> subject, uh, because this is a whiskey podcast and now that Indiana Jones redux. Yeah. Do you think the good Ali Walker, a.k.a. Alistair Walker, uh, is a fan of the Indiana Jones series? He is our age. Yeah, and that's, all. I have no doubt that he is. Those, mm. for, for gentlemen of our age, those were on... Christmas telly every year growing up in Scotland and for us at our age growing up in Scotland meant three channels until the 80s then a fourth and then somewhere in the 90s there was a fifth Mm. but really for us growing up it was three and then four channels you pretty much watched what they put on in front of you Mm. you got to figure it's miserable outside Mm. There's, there's no chance to go outside and play. Um, you do just hole up in the house and you do watch Christmas movies yeah. and you watch whatever the BBC puts in front of you <laughs> or ITV. <laughs> and yes, and I even told my boys as we were watching it, the scene in Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where 
they're running through the bazaar and the guy comes out with the, the sword and he starts spinning it and turning yes, yes, it. Yes, 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 And then he just looks at him and then pulls out his gun and shoots him. Yeah. My dad, every year, year upon year, yeah. that scene just creased him. It's year after year. Creased. So. What does creased mean? Doubled him up in laughter. Ah, he just, yes. he just, it just, every year he laughed like he was seeing it for the first time. It was it was great because it was it was such a beautiful punchline to a funny, silly little joke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it, it continues to be hilarious. So, yeah. So so yeah. So my my take is that Ali would have grown up with these movies mm. on the telly mm. uh, in the same way that that I did. Yeah, uh, I didn't think to ask him this question. When I interviewed him in Scotland, yeah, but I I will say it was one of those classic days that you and I have lived many times, where I woke up in Elgin after a, a night at the Druthy. Mm, mm-hmm. This this one was with Jess and with Ronnie Rutledge. Uh, oh, I forgot you were hanging with Ronnie as well. Yep, oh, that's fantastic! Yep, it was, yeah, it was a jolly good night. Yep, and then boom, jumped in the car the next morning and drove to. Oh, Christ, where did I drive to? Fifeshire? Fife? Christ, now I forget where I drove to. Grangemouth. Grangemouth. I had a really bad case of Grangemouth, like maybe eight months ago. You do not want to put feet or (laughs) knees in your mouth. It will lead to a very bad case of Grangemouth. And it was the knees that got me. I keep on putting (laughs) people's knees into my mouth. And I get Grangemouth. It happens, you know. One thing leads to another and there's a knee in your mouth. And... And so, yes, so I went to visit him in his new offices. All right. Which, as you'll hear him make reference to in the interview, he just occupies by himself of a day. And it's it was uh, a big office space. Okay. Which I think he'll ultimately come to fill with other people. But it was uh, it was a lovely, lovely conversation. And, and as, again, you'll hear later on in the interview, you and I have had so many good conversations with Ali just in an office, over a, over a coffee, over a, a little whiskey, mm. that actually getting him interviewed was really important to me, to you, to yes. us. Oh, without a doubt. And the fact that he really rose to the challenge. And, and I really want to thank him because as much as we were there to talk independent bottling and his new company and frequent flyers, one of the things you and I always try to do on this podcast is give a context, give a grounding for the person we're interviewing. Yeah. And so I asked him questions about Burn Stewart, where he started. I asked him questions about Ben Riach and Glendronach and Glenglassa. Mm-hmm. And he answered them all and he shared what he could share. And it really, I think, enriched the conversation that he and I were having, yeah. which was again, and you and I have said this from the beginning, we don't set ourselves up as a promo wing of anybody or anything that we're interviewing. No. We're just having a whiskey conversation. And for me, I was as curious about his Ben Riach days and how those led to Glendronach days. I was as curious about how he got his start as I am about what does he do now, now that he's an IB? What Mm. challenges is he facing? (laughs) Uh, He and I, you know lamenting, you know, oftentimes being in the same predicament now where he was somebody that we spoke to way back yeah. uh, in the beginning yeah. of our company 
and and he listened to us and it it ended up being more than just a cup of coffee mm-hmm. and we did release the peated 17-year-old Ben Riach single cask <laughs> in our first release and our first three bottles our, our first three bottles uh first four bottles actually <laughs> what kind of revisionist history is this there were three <laughs> bottles but there was a fourth one that came slightly later remember because there was the Glen Murray Glen Murray came with the next three Lafroy, Dalmore, and Glen Murray. Okay, but most importantly, <laughs> let's remember. Let's remember this, and I'm not going to revise history here. What I am going to do is I'm going to share with our listeners our very the detail, a very specific detail of our first meeting with Ali Walker. Okay, so you and I were driving to their offices, which are connected to the bottling hall, which is in. Elizabeth something? It wasn't Leith. It wasn't Edinburgh, but it was something Elizabeth. Or maybe that it was... was an in, it was an industrial state outside of Edinburgh. Yeah, so maybe the industrial state, industrial yeah. estate was called Elizabeth something or other. So we, we get into the offices and we go into the uh, conference room. And in the conference room, there's bottles everywhere and sample bottles. And I'm looking at the bottle labels and there's... Glendronux and Benriax from the 70s and 80s and 90s and and all sorts of just fun treats about. And, you know, after the pleasantries, hey, how are you doing? Uh, so on and so forth. Ali poses a very important question to us. And he says, would you guys like a whiskey? And you said without hesitation, no, no, I think we're okay. Exactly. That I will never, ever let you live that down because he was offering us samples to taste. And yeah. he said, no, nah, I, I, I don't, you know, here we are, we're an independent bottler. We're not interested in tasting the whiskeys you have. I would yeah. rather have coffee. Very much so. That's wrong Very thinking. So. Wrong thinking, my friend. No, that was, that, was, that, was a, that was a calculated move. You know, we were walking in off the street didn't know us from a hole in the ground i didn't want him to think we were there on a jolly we were there to talk business cup cup of coffee talk business wow this is some revisionist history it's right not here. a dram session how many times have you yelled at yourself about passing up on those drams never not once every not time one day of my life wow Wow. (laughs) So listen, I listened to the interview between you and Allie Walker this morning. And one of the- You don't have to give away your shoddy preparation. No. Keep that to yourself. Listen, listen, it's not shoddy preparation. It's it's, we're on vacation time. It's (laughs) you and I, even though this is being released- on a New Year's Day, we're recording during Hanukkah. I got stuff going on. Now you're just giving on. away all the secrets. Here we go. Okay, Listen, it's unraveling. If anything, I'm truthful. And and so I had to carve some time to listen to the interview. And to be honest, I thought it would be best to listen to it before we recorded so it was nice and fresh. And my concern was, because this happens to you sometimes when you record <laughs> alone. On your production meeting. Right? <laughs> and it happens to me sometimes when I record alone is you have bits and bobs that are useful and parts that I wouldn't say aren't useful, but but you say, you know what, maybe that 
sometimes it's just a bit of an interview, right? And and you're going from subject to subject. This is a full-on just fun conversation between two guys who have started an independent bottling company. You with Single Cast Nation, him with Infrequent Flyers, and him giving a, a history as to how he got to bottling Infrequent Flyers. And the point that I'm trying to make is I listened to this fresh because I thought, okay, we may have to break this up a little bit. But yeah, I don't no. think we have to break it up. I no. think we can present it to people just as the wonderful little conversation that it was. Well, and I, I'll add on to that, that having received feedback from the listeners, mm-hmm. it's good to know that listeners like just sitting back and being a fly on the wall. Yeah. The, yeah. the other thing for me when I'm conducting an interview without you is I don't want to create a lot of editing work for you. Oh, you're so thoughtful. You're so good. I am. I am. And so so I always have those two thoughts in mind. Mm. How and I really do. When I'm, you know, I I did the exact same thing sitting in the car with Stuart Nickerson, uh, which actually happened um a month or two after the Ali Walker interview, actually, the way the timing all worked out. Oh, so this interview is quite a bit, a few months ago so, then. Well, it's, I think one of them happened in October and then the other one happened in uh, November. Okay, 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 so okay. yeah, still, they, yeah, they themselves are only about four or five, six weeks apart. Yeah. But, but when I was sitting in the car with Stuart, when I was sitting in the office with Ali, uh, we have another interview coming up with Gordon Bruce uh, mm. later this month Can't at, wait. at Knock Do Distillery. When I was sitting with each of these chaps, I really did consider the listener uh, to be occupying one of the empty chairs, mm. whether it was around a table, it was on the couch, it was in the back of the car. I really, I really and I really mean it when I say this, I really do consider our listeners to be a part of that conversation Mm. the same way I consider you to be a part of that conversation and then working with an angle of not creating a ton of editing here, I think, and certainly it's my attempt, you know, is to make it just a conversation, just a chat, just a back and forth, trying to think, okay, what does the listener want to hear? Mm. What would you want to hear? What am I finding interesting in this conversation and where do I want to take it? So yeah. I'm really pleased that that's how this one came out. I definitely think how the, the Stuart Nickerson one came out. Uh, we'll, we'll find out later this month if the Gordon Bruce one came out similarly. <laughs> I think it did. I, I really do. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I just sit back, pour a dram. It's still holiday time. And uh, and just enjoy it. Just enjoy the chat for what it is. And and Ali, as we say in the interview, has been in the industry for a good period of time. He has seen things, just like we discussed four decades with Stuart Nickerson. Mm. Here I was able to discuss two full decades plus with Alistair Walker. <laughs> so let's put that into perspective really yeah. quickly. Yeah. He's our age. Yeah. Around about. He may be slightly younger than us. No, no. no, We're we're talking months, months difference in age. Months difference in age. And that is, and he has had two decades worth of experience. 
Yeah, January 97, you'll hear him say it in the interview, yeah. the very beginning of the interview, January 97. So that's yep. 22 years. About to be 23. About to be 23. And, you know, you think you think about Stuart Nickerson, who isn't much older than us, right? No. Nope. But, but nope. 40 years is an achievement. And I tell you, 23 years isn't too far from it. It's remarkable, um, isn't it's, it? Yeah, that's that's pretty that's pretty amazing, actually. And and I I really want to keep talking about what Ali talked about, but we will just let the listener get to it. But pay attention to where he describes the evolution of the industry mm. and think about mm-hmm. that was one of the key elements, key threads of the conversation with Stuart as well. Look at who was established as a blender. Mm. Look who was mm. proud of their blends. That's what was going to market. Where did single malts come in? Where did single casks of single malts yeah, come in? Yeah. Ali gets to put some more leaves on those branches mm-hmm. that we were discussing with Stuart Nickerson. And then you have the perfect overlap, yeah. which is the Ben Riach Distilling Company that Ali was working for is the company that bought Glenglassa Distillery that Stuart Nickerson was working for. Oh, man. Boom. Boom. Look at that. Dots, they be connected. So there you go. I could keep talking about the interview, but let's kick it over to, to me and Ali sitting in Grangemouth having a chat. Grangemouth. Nasty kiss. So before we get to Alistair Walker, independent bottler, yep. I mean, we want to talk about the formation of that. We met back when you were Ben Riach Glendronach, probably 2011. Yeah, uh, we just established the company. You were very kind to take a meeting with us, and we had the pleasure of your company, and we selected some Venria from you. Uh, that's so. That's basically my introduction to Alistair Walker. What brought you even to Venria? What was your beginning in the industry? Um, I actually I, w- I worked um, before I was at Venria. I mean, I was at Venria for twelve years, so. You know, the biggest part of my working life has been spent with, with Ben Reick. Um But before Ben Reick, I was actually at Burn Stewart for about six years. And I really got into that through my, my dad. Um, so basically, I'm sure most of your listeners know who my dad is. Um, <laughs> but he's... Uh, he he worked at Burn Stewart for quite a, a long time. And when I, when I left university... I was looking, what, what I really needed to do was was get a job uh, and I didn't particularly want to get a job in the whiskey industry. Okay, um, you hear that a bit. Yes, but I needed, you know, it's the usual thing. You want to get some experience on, on your CV. So my dad said, look, come and, come and work at, come and work at Barn Stewart. You can take a job in the marketing department. That will give you a good sort of exposure to what we do. Um, you get to work with the marketing guys and the sales guys and you'll see a bit of what goes on. And then he said, after a year, you'll have that experience and then you can go and get a job somewhere else. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm still trying to get that job somewhere else. So <laughs> Sounds like he set a trap for you, dude. I, you know, the more I think about it, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Um, okay, it's, it, it is one of those, you know, some people will, will actually, they'll set out to try and get into the whiskey industry. Other people fall into it by accident. Um, either way, what what... 95% of the time what happens is once you're in it, you decide you really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, good people in it. it. It's very, it's good fun. It's sociable most of the time. 
Um, most, most of the time, good fun, not most of the time sociable. Well, <laughs> it depends what your job is. But um, I've heard the rumours about you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older. Um, but it's, it's one of these industries where you, you, once you're in it, you generally don't want to, to leave it. Um, so, yeah, I kind of fell into it by accident and... So, so, so which year was that? When did you first oh, come right, into Burn so Stewart? This is where I have to do some mental arithmetic. I so just after I left uni, so it would have been nineteen January nineteen ninety seven. Okay. So yeah, I was twenty twenty two years old. Okay. So my first, but the weird thing was I actually had worked when I was at high school. Um, sort of, I think it was between fourth year, fifth year, sixth year. I actually used to go and work in the office at Burn Stewart out in Airdrie uh, during the summer, just for like four to five weeks. Okay. And uh, I used to just do like, uh, oh, you want to see in the computer system they had there? <laughs> uh, like, you know, black with green. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So I, I used to just sit and input stock information. Um, which wow. was where I learned all these names. Was it written in a ledger, that type of thing? And then it you was on paper and I had, I had to transfer it. Uh, do you know, it's quite a, quite a cool story, actually. Um, how, it's funny how things go full circle and people never leave this industry. But the, the I'm not going to mention his name, but there was a guy uh, who worked for Burns Stewart out, out at their, their bottling plant at Barhead. And any time there was a, a, a stock query in relation to the data, I would have to phone him. Uh, he is now the guy who does my bottling for my single casks now this is like we've we've, we've moved on what well, that was 1990 well i was at high school then so we're talking about 30 years Gosh. further on uh and he's still around and he's as i said to him uh when we agreed uh to to that he would do my bottling for me i said you now have the pleasure of uh of working with me again after all this time so. <laughs> again it's a small whiskey world it is um so so for you january 97 january said? 97 yeah so and that was burn stewart was it still the four at that time uh tobermory lechig deanston and Bunahaven? Oh, well, I mean, that predated uh, Buna by, by like, I left just as Buna was being purchased. Um, so that, that didn't happen okay. for another another six years. When I when I worked at Burn Stewart, um, we had we had Deanston and Tobermory, um, but we were more, single malt wasn't really, uh, it wasn't like it is today. This is uh, what I was just about to ask. Yeah, you, you couldn't, we didn't sell a lot of single malt. We weren't trying to sell a lot of single malt. We, we, it was important to have distilleries so that you were actually a producer. Um, oh, that, even even then. Yeah, now that would get you access to you know stock, and you could trade stock and whatnot. Sure. Um, you know when you're a, we we were mainly a blender, so or we we did bulk, we did blend, so you you had to get access to liquid from all sorts of other people, and having your own distilleries obviously obviously helped. Hmm, yeah, um, sure. We also had a brilliant product. Um, you can't get it anymore. Uh, we had we launched a, a whiskey liqueur called Wallace after after William Wallace. Okay. And we we spent a, there was a period of time where that was like the there was so much energy that went into that. I actually loved that product. I thought it was brilliant. But it, was, it went up against the likes of uh, you know Dram Bui and and Glevar. At the end of the day, it probably had like two or three years in the sun, and then it it, it just faded. It faded away. So what was in it? If you're able to say, I think it was. I think the if you remember, yeah, uh, vaguely. I think I think the base whiskey was Deanston. That so there was there was unlike a lot of other liqueurs that are out there, there was a single malt base to it. 
Um, and then there was, there's obviously sugar in it, um, which is needed for a liqueur. And there was various sort of herbs. I, I can't remember specifically, oh, wow. but, okay. um, and it was quite, it was, it was, I'm sure it was bottled about 35% uh, ABV. So it was, um, it was quite potent for a liqueur. It was great. I mean, it was a great drink and we actually thought it was going to go on and do great things. But as I say, it never, it never quite transpired that way. And, and sadly you can't, uh, you can't even get it any, anymore. Did it have a key market while it had its moment in the sun? Was there some... it's really, it was the UK. I mean, we, we, we were selling it in the UK we, and it was listed in a lot of supermarkets, uh, especially, you know, we, we did a, we actually did a TV ad campaign, which we'd, um, I'm not sure we'd ever done one before. Um, so that obviously cost quite a, a lot of money <laughs> and, um, you know, we had a big, we had a big party, uh, premiere to premiere the, the TV ad. It only lasted for about 25 seconds, uh, <laughs> the, the advert. Um, but we did, so we did, we had this big push one Christmas because obviously Christmas time is liqueur time. Sure. Uh, and we'd got all these listings at the, the supermarkets and we had the TV thing and that, that was kind of at it. That was when it peaked. I actually think it's so long ago now, it's hard to remember, but it's coming back to me that it was probably the, it was a difficult thing to sell abroad. People didn't get what a whiskey liqueur was outside okay. of the UK. Um, and I think we just couldn't, because because we were selling most of it in the UK and we couldn't really do much with it elsewhere, I think that's probably where we just couldn't get the volumes for it. And it, and it, it ended up, um, it just kind of faded away. As these things yeah. tend to do in the industry. My old man's still got a bottle at home. Uh, okay. And I'm, I'd, I'd love to just crack it open. Um, I mean, it's not like... It's probably not even worth anything. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to let uncork it just because I think it's probably the last one in existence, you know. <laughs> so, it's anything else from the time Tobermory, Deanston, late 90s, single malt not really been a thing? There was, there was a very fun, there was a weird, uh, I mean, it is a long time ago, but there's one, there's a, uh, this one cropped up actually again. So, I was over at my dad's house and he has got, he's probably got an amazing collection of whiskey bottles that he doesn't realize he's got because they're dotted all over the house in different cupboards and whatnot and i i'd, I'd kind of i'm going to do an inventory one day um <laughs> but I, I, hunt. i'd, I'd kind of gone around looking for because i thought he's he's got he should put them all out on display and i started looking in all the cupboards to see what he had and he, he's just like he, he just he, he accumulates stuff accidentally when it comes to whiskey. Mm. And uh, I found I found this brilliant thing that we'd done back in the day at Burn Stewart. Now, I remember that, so this would be my first ever single cask bottling. This was my, I'm now saying this was my introduction to independent <laughs> bottling. I had this customer in Japan. I used to look after uh, Japan for Burn Stewart. And we, we had about like nine importers for, for all the different things that we did. And uh, this guy had phoned me one day and said, can you do a, can you do a, a single cask bottling? And I was like, well, so what's that? <laughs> it's like you what, we just want one cask. <laughs> You're mad. And he, he, I said, "What is it? What is it you want? Is it Deanston? Is it is it is it you know is it Tobermory?" Or he said, "No, no, no. I know you've got like other whiskies that aren't yours." Oh, okay. I said, "Yeah, I believe I believe so." Um, he said, "Can we do one of those?" And I, I said, "Well, I, I don't really know much about this, but." Um, we ended up designing. I, I I couldn't get my head around what he was talking about. I mean, I was like, why 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 do you want to do it? You know. So we ended up designing a, this kind of unique burn burn Stewart Distillers single cast bottling label, and we did. Uh, it was it was something like uh, with with a Glenn Fla Flagler Glenn Flagler. 
something like that. Okay. It, it was, whatever it was, uh-huh. I found a bottle of it at my old man's place and the distillery doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. So it's it's a closed distillery, but not a famous one like Little Mill or Rosebank or whatever. Uh-huh. Possibly Glen Flagler, but I need to check that. Okay. Yeah, so we did we did this for the guy and it was one cask and whatnot. And it was just funny when I found that a few weeks ago, I was like, yeah, I remember that now. And <laughs> that was independent bottling. And yeah. it's not like we, we didn't we didn't do that. We didn't do independent bottling, but we, we generally, if a customer came and asked for something, we always kind of tried to to do something for them. I, I really didn't know what I was doing at that point. I, I was like, this, this is a bit strange. Um, it's so, not our whiskey. So once again, we missed you by a decade. Right? Exactly. If we darkened your door a decade. Clo- closed distilleries, the works, you know. <laughs> Gosh. And by the way, by the way, it wasn't, it wouldn't have been expensive, whatever that was oh, no. that we, we sold at the That'd time. That would been chips, yeah. Yeah. But it was funny because we, we were definitely... We had we had two malt whiskey distilleries and, and like I, I left I left just after the company bought um Bunahaben. Um but it really was so that, that would have been about probably two Buna, Buna was maybe two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, something like that. Oh wow. I think two thousand and thirteen that's when they bought it. Okay. May, maybe the year before. But it was really only about a year or two later that the whole in my opinion, that the boom of single malt whiskey started yeah. to happen. It was, I mean, we were when, when we got Ben Riek, and that was kind of a, a really nice timing because that's when things have started to to pick up. So, for sure, you know the old the old company Barn Stewart were sitting there with three whiskey distilleries making single malt, but there wasn't a there wasn't a big market for single malt at at the time. Sure, but sure. So so we haven't actually mentioned your dad's name up to this point. So so Billy Walker is your dad. Billy Walker was. Burn Stewart, he left there to then. Yeah, there was a, so, Yeah, Burn, it's one of the. I mean, Burn, Burn Stewart had the the business was sold um, to Angostura, oh, which okay. everybody everybody thinks. Uh, well, certainly in the UK, when people think of Angostura, they always think Angostura bitters. Uh-huh. You know, the, the little splash you put in a long vodka. <laughs> uh, but more more to that company, you know, big rum producer uh, yep. and whatnot. So they 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 had uh, they basically bought Barn Stewart and usual sort of thing when companies change ownership people leave whatnot so sure. so man he departed and um, that's when he started looking at the possibility of buying a a distillery uh, himself but not he had other people on on board with him sure. but that was kind of the it was the move to go from effectively being an employee to being someone that ran their own their own ship sure. if you like and so you were with Burn Stewart up until that sale of it as yeah, well I, I st- you I st- hadn't I st- to go anywhere else no I stayed I stayed on a little bit longer um, okay. I was there for a wee bit longer um, and then I, I, I what I did I mean it, the, the, the Ben Reek acquisition didn't happen overnight that, that was that was, that took quite a while sure. and um, some old man was kind of I, I'm, he did some consultancy work for one or two other distillers f- for a, a small amount of time. I actually, when I left Burn Stewart, I, I went back to university for a year oh. and did my did my masters. And once again, tried not <laughs> to get a job in the the, the whiskey industry. <laughs> you are not good at this. No, I went. I went, actually went to work for a. I went to work for a, a refrigeration company, and I, and I lasted. Uh, yeah, I was going to be. I was going to be a fridge magnet. 
But, um, <laughs> I, la- I lasted two weeks. And then it, it, it just so happens, Mo Man, it, he, he started up with Ben Reek by this point. So, I, you know, I'd, I'd been there for a year doing my, okay. my, my master's uh-huh. and he'd now gotten his distillery up and running that year. And uh, I, I phoned him and said, look, I, I can't, this, this, I need to... I need to get back into the whiskey game. Okay, so which year was that? Yeah, I left. I left Burns Stewart two thousand and three, and finished up my my course in summer of two thousand and four. And I think I think they acquired Ben Reek around about April two thousand and four. Okay, and I joined in like September October time. Okay, okay. And then what did you walk in the door to do? And did you end up doing what? See, so, so, yeah, sales so, so, so and marketing. I mean, we we our team at Ben Reek at the time. So we obviously you've got the distillery up north, and there was maybe about six people working there. And then we had a we had an office down in the central belt. And when I walked in the door, I was the, f- the fifth person working in that office. Okay. Um. So that was it, and I did sales and marketing. Um. And at the time, there was my old man used to, he used to sell as well bulk case goods whatever and then after about a year or two we brought in a another sales guy um but that you know it was a really it was a really small team we did everything you know i would actually say that the probably the first two years working at ben reak were my most enjoyable in the entire time i spent in the whiskey industry because i learned so much that during that time and there was no pressure every sale be it a case or a bottle was like a victory mm. and we had no expectations of what the business was going to become so we hadn't, we didn't have to answer to anyone there was no pressure sure and what what i did found i found over time as as a business gets bigger you start to put pressure on yourself <laughs> you start you know yourself you, you're, you, you're on your own business you, you start to raise your expectations and then if you don't meet those expectations, you start to beat yourself up. Mm-hmm. So that, that first that first couple of years was brilliant. Um yeah, really, really good fun. What was the what was the attitude to Ben Riak as a distillery when you've walked in the door and you're doing Ben Riak sales? Was it well regarded at that time? Was it coming off the back of something less successful? What what was the state of the distillery when you took it over and started selling it? I mean, the distillery itself was was good. You know, I I, th- I think when you were we, we bought it from Chivas or or, or Perno, whatever people want to call them. It's that's a well run company. You mm-hmm. know, yeah, you, you've 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 been passed on a distillery that's in good condition, and and you've inherited a lot of stock that was in good wood and mm-hmm. whatnot. It's funny going back over all this stuff because I haven't talked about it for a long time. Um, Benriek was. It was actually a great distillery to buy because it did have quite a lot of stock going all the way back to the 60s. Plus, they, they, they'd done quite a lot of experimental stuff there. Mm. So there was interest in stock. There was things you might not find in other distilleries, like, nice. you know, peated whiskey and triple distilled whiskey and all that kind of stuff. Okay. What we didn't inherit was a brand. There was effectively, there had been one official distillery release, which was like a no-age statement product that wasn't widely available was that the white box with the red bar with kind of the black block yeah, and yeah, font yeah, on it? Yeah, so you couldn't... Um, I buy those at auction whenever I can. Aye, I know. I, I, I don't even think I've got one. Yeah, I um, love them. There wasn't really a brand to to, to, to speak of. So, so you're able to sort of start from scratch, which is good and bad. I mean, you, you, you sure. decide. You, you kind of set the agenda. We, we kind of had to go out and kind of create the 
the persona for, for Ben Reek. No, nobody really had done it before. Yeah. And what did you come out the gate with? What did you think in going through the stocks and looking at what you had with this experimental distillery? What did you come out doing with Ben Reek that obviously resonated because it took on a, a very good reputation for itself? I mean, we, we started off with, I mean, I remember the first products we had, there was there was three um, kind of classic Speyside whiskies that, that, you know, were based on bourbon cask maturation, but with a little bit of sherry cask in there or some, you know, some virgin oak that obviously th those things they wouldn't necessarily be like that from day one because, mm -hmm. you know, these, these these wood initiatives take time to come into effect. So you would probably have seen in the first two or three years that the products would have evolved mm -hmm. and e each batch might not have been exactly the same. Sure. Um, but we also, we, we, we brought out some PT stuff as well, early doors, which was there and really didn't need anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it was it was good to go. And there was, you know, we even had a 21-year-old PT'd whiskey, which you don't get a lot of even from a, a distillery that, you know, d does peated whiskey full time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my old man started working on the, the different wood finishes and whatnot, which, which came later once, once it had a certain amount of time. It's one it's funny because we, because we only had one distillery, you, <laughs> you had to try and create as many different expressions from that distillery as you could. Mm -hmm. Further down the road, when you start getting into multiple distilleries, you, you then, possibly you, you, that demand isn't there for all those expressions because then you've got more distilleries to, to play with. And sure. Did you have different markets for different releases? Because like, I'm, I'm thinking about you You developed the, the Benriac that started to have some of the Latin names on it. Yeah. Were, yep. those, were those global? Did you have age statements going in any key place? Or so was it different across markets, or was it consistent across uh, all markets? Most mo most of the products were available everywhere. Okay. Um, you did find that certain styles of whiskey worked better in certain markets. Like peated whiskey tends to be popular in countries that have a a, a colder winter climate. So like ah, okay. Scandinavia was always popular for peated whiskies. Canada, for example. Okay. Um, you might not find that they they worked as well in Asia, but I mean that's it, it's I don't want to stereotype. Sure, it, it, sure. It's too much of a broad brush. Sure, but you clearly saw patterns in sales and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then put your money. Yeah, and then there was um, things like that. It's funny you mentioned the Latin names. That just came from my old man. He had he had uh, he had he had gone to school during during a time when you were forced to study Latin. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think he's ever had much use for it. So uh, <laughs> he had this Latin dictionary sitting on his desk, which which suddenly was starting to get flicked through a lot, and these names were coming up. And then they weren't even even they, they were kind of like pseudo Latin. Um, so I'm not even sure they were real words. Most of them. Well, okay, worked for J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter spells. Yeah, yeah, she's she's done all right. <laughs> Clearly worked for Ben Rio. Aye, aye. I don't. I don't I mean, I, I still see even now. I think. Not ones that we came up with, but I do. I've seen a few of the names of recent releases that seem to have followed the that that pattern. There are some out there if you keep your eyes open. There's no doubt about that. So, so you've gone from Benriac established, then Glendronic came into the fold. Yeah, Glendronic was two thousand. So Benriac was two thousand and four. Glendronic was two thousand and eight when we bought that one. Just pause for a second on on the going into Glendronic there. Given that at this point you're now a decade in the industry. And you've gone from being 
kind of with a blending house with Burn Stewart now into representing these single malts. Were you seeing this change in the marketplace? Were you seeing demand and and kind of where the buzz was starting to change? Around about 2006 was when our job seemed to become a little bit easier. Interesting. I felt that instead of us pushing on doors, people were coming to us. Nice. And suddenly it wasn't as difficult to sell product as it had been the first couple of years. Partly... Obviously, we 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 become a little bit better known, but I I, th- I think that I would say two thousand and six was the year that things really started to pick up um, for single malt as a as a category. And that's also the number I tend to use when I talk about producers ramping up production as yeah. well. Is around that two thousand and six, um, the I think the global boom was starting to be noticed. Um, were you finding yourself going out into global markets more? Yep. Was yeah, your yeah. team going out into global markets? Yeah, more? so, yeah, I mean, we, we were selling into more and more countries, uh, places we hadn't been before, um, you know, going over to places like Russia and whatnot. Um, and then obviously we, we had, we just, we had, to, we had to bring in more people to cope with the demand and the workload. But yeah, that, that, that's, that's probably when it changed. I would say though, there was, there, there were, I mean, before, before we took Ben Riek, uh, you know, the classic story of taking a, a distillery from a big multinational and going independent. Yeah. Um, there were, there were two or three others that had, had kind of done this before us that had kind of blazed a bit of a trail and, and, you know, Brooke Laddie's a good example. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were, they were ahead of Ben Riek. And you also, at the time you had other independent distillers like, you know, Springbank and Edred Dower and Aaron mm-hmm. that were, they were creating this idea of, an independent distillery versus a big multinational distillery. Sure. And we we benefited from that That's because there, there was a hunger from consumers for that type of distillery. Uh, so you got a little bit of a, a bit of traction through through that. That's fantastic. That's really wonderful to hear. So so then 2008, Glendronach gets added in. Clearly Glendronach came with a reputation or or am, am I misremembering no, you're right. you're, that? You're absolutely okay. right. Uh, and it was it was it was different. It was very different to the Ben Reek story. Um Glendronic had been about really a, as a brand since the nineteen sixties and it had a little bit of a, a cult following mm-hmm. um in the industry. It was known as a sherry cask whiskey. And as I said, you know, if you if you go back to the sixties, you know, probably through to the I'd, Probably for about forty years after the sixties, there, there were there were a small number of single malts out there that you could readily get access to, and like I say, it was it was once you get into the noughties that the whole mm-hmm. category started to kind of explode a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Glendronic had been one of those that had been about for a while. Plus, it had that that style that that sherry cast style. Very few distilleries were were you know focused on on yep. that that style. Obviously, Macallan was was one of them. Yep. Those were the, the couple of things that made this an interesting proposition. I, I can only imagine what it was like being part of that global rise of single malt, but then adding a, a powerhouse sherry single malt to your portfolio. Yeah, it's, I mean, Glendronic was probably, buying Glendronic was probably the biggest thing that the company ever did. Um, did that also come from... Perno that was from Perno, yeah. yeah. So there was, we had a relationship, which was there was a lot. I mean, there were a lot of people trying to buy Glendronic. Uh, that 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 went on. That okay. was a bit of a uh, 
but let's just say that the price rose because there was other people interested. So, you know, the natural kind of thing that happens, supply and demand. Uh-huh. It helped the fact that we we did have a relationship. So Perno knew that we were straightforward to deal with. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, you, you always, if you, if you sell a distillery, you want to pass it into good hands. So that, that, that helped. But at the end of the day, there's also a price attached to the distillery that had to, had to be paid. I, I don't know if you, if, I've, if I can ask you this or if you even want to answer this. Was there a reason why Pernod would have allowed Glendronach to go? Was there a reason why this? I don't think they ever gave us a reason, but you know, from their point of view, Glendronach's a small uh, production unit. Um, okay. It's not, I mean, Benry can produce almost twice as much whiskey as, as Glendronach. Okay. So Glendronach's maximum output uh, was about 1.4 million. And it, I don't wow. think it ever ran at that. It probably would run more, about, even when we had it, maybe up to 1.2. Max. Okay. Wow, I always um, thought of it just being bigger than that. It's, it looks bigger. It's a big site. It's a big site. It's got a lot of warehouse capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of, of actual potential output of liquid, it wasn't big. Interesting. And the thing is, Pernod weren't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something they were focusing on as a, obviously they've got Glenlivet, which is, is massive. Sure. Um, I don't know if it's number two or number one in the uh. world, but, um, and then you've got, you've got, kind of big brands like Aberlour and whatnot. So mm-hmm. obviously there's, there's certain distilleries in their portfolio that are, are great but are not focused on. Sure. And for whatever reason, um, you know, Glendronic had, had become surplus to requirements. It wasn't something they were focusing on. And I say size, size is an issue. Um, I think they prefer a bigger, a bigger site. So it became available. Okay. Our listeners are very familiar with the stock shortage that you experienced while at Glendronach. Yeah. You and I have talked about that in your office. Are you comfortable talking a little bit about well, that? Let, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> let's see how we go. I, I don't I don't have a leading question for you, but but obviously the twelve year old developed a certain reputation for a particular reason, and yeah. if you'd be interested in putting leaves on those branches. Well, I'll, I'll, not too many, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's really a, you only have to go and look at the, the history of Glendronach and you can see the periods when it was open and when it was closed. And one of, one of the things you have to do when you're a distillery, and if you've got a core range of products, but you have a, a period of closure, you need to decide whether or not you're going to chop and change your your portfolio or if you are going to go through a period where you overage some of your whiskies to maintain that product on the market. Um, And different companies will have different approaches to it and they're all as right as each other. You know, if if we we did overage some products for a period... um, what you get there is a that that that's that's the difficult thing to do um, because you know there's a, there's a cost implication uh, of course and yeah. there's there's opportunity cost because um, you sold that whiskey at a different age level at a different price but that's that's what we decided to do didn't always do it you know there there came a point with the fifteen year old where we had to discontinue it because the stock just wasn't just wasn't there um, it was all in the twelve well I never said that but uh, <laughs> but you know that that that, that you also need to kind of think, you know, the 15 was an interesting one. We always plan to bring it back. Mm. So it's just managing that type of situation. Okay. 
cool. Thanks for answering that. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm wary of the fact that I'm not involved with it anymore. Yes. So I'm, 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 you know, what do I say? But understood. Cheers. So then you've got uh, 2008. You've now been building Glendron. Very quickly, actually, I forgot to ask you this a moment ago. Benriac made the decision to kind of reopen their floor maltings. Yeah. And the last I saw that, it was being painted and the floor was ready. Did you go ahead with floor maltings at Benriac? I think, I think there's been sort of... Um, I think there have been periods of floor malting. Uh, it's not... I don't think it happens all the time, but I, I think there are there are um, campaigns, if okay. you like, as far as I'm aware, okay. um, where, where floor malting takes place. Well, what was the reason? Obviously, you know, you're going around enough distilleries that they'll talk about not having the, the maltings on site anymore. It's a pro job done by a pro outfit. Given when you did that, and I'm trying to think, I knew of the floor maltings being reopened somewhere around 2011 or so. What was the internal thinking on going back to some floor maltings? If, if if you do if you do have your own floor maltings, it's definitely a it's an expensive way to um, it adds cost mm-hmm. to your your malted barley part of the operation, and that's why most people don't don't do it, sure. um, and that's why you you tend to find that those that do might be located on islands where okay. actually it might make sense to do it locally rather than having to bring ingredients in from, you know, the mainland. Sure. Um, we obviously were a mainland distillery. Um, it was purely... Uh, any, any idea to do that would have been based on going back to the, the traditional production technique and, and trying, to, trying to do something that may have not made sense financially but was good for the brand and, and that's what i was wondering about if it was part of a a larger story you were able to tell about ben because obviously it's not as easy to control when you're not doing it all the time you might not get the same yield from it and so financially financially it, it, it doesn't it's, always it's seem... not yeah it's not a financially driven it wouldn't be a financially driven thing to do it's more about kind of building something into the the heritage of, of the distillery and the brand and whatnot. Well, and certainly I think if we look at places like Springbank or Colholmen or even Brookladdy, who have tried to do some local barley additions, yep. they are just that additions. It doesn't become part of the standard release. So I, I want to close out the history of, of Alistair Walker um, with the purchase of Glenglassa. It was it was clearly the third feather in the cap uh, of the Benriac Distillery Company. Yeah, that's, yep, yep. Um, and so that was a purchase. Was that made about two thousand and? Oh no, this is when my memory starts to get a bit hazy. I I think it's the recent memory. It's the problem. When do you think it was? I th- I thought two thousand thirteen. I think you're right because I thought that's that's the number I had in my head. Okay, because I thought Stuart had maybe run it for five full years. Yeah, they 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 took the project on in two thousand and eight, and I think they are they distilled towards the end of 2008 for the first time and I think that that all sounds about right yeah I think we're in ballpark there and so now you've got a third added in England Glassa I love the fact that you've got Benriac that didn't really have much of a, a brand standing Glendronach that had a strong brand standing yep. and then Glen Glassa which has spent more of its history closed than yep. it has open yep. now you've added that as a third feather what was the thinking with Glen Glassa there there was always, I, th- I think, you know, the, as you've probably seen in the six years since then, um, 
the opportunities to buy distilleries are becoming thinner on the on the ground, and the the prices are are going on only one direction. Uh-huh. Glenglasso was almost an opportunistic purchase that the distillery became available almost out of the blue. Okay, and we were kind of alerted to it. And Moban always thought, you know, the chance to buy a distillery is always worth pursuing. Okay, if if the price is, is right. Glenglassaw would have been, for the very point you mentioned about how long it had been closed, mm-hmm. that's that's a huge challenge. Um, I think it had been, been in operation and then it had been shut for over 20 years and then it had obviously been reopened by the, the, the people that we bought it from. Mm-hmm. So they, they'd, they'd taken that kind of leap of faith to get it up and running again and then we were sort of taking it on. But um, there's no doubt that that, that big gap an inventory is a big, a yeah. big challenge. Yeah. So you would have taken on a distillery that had thirty years and above, and five years. Yeah, yeah. Below. You had you had you had really old whiskey, which <laughs> is um, missing years. Yeah, and and you're kind of missing the sweet spot in the middle there, because uh, <laughs> old whiskey, um, there's definitely a market for it, as we know, mm-hmm. but it's expensive, which reduces the size of the market, and then younger whiskey. Has always been viewed with uh, great suspicion. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that's changing um, a little bit these days. Um, you know, people are doing different things with wood and whatnot to to kind of almost counterbalance the the limitations of age. Sure. But uh, there's no doubt that they are sometimes viewed with suspicion as well. Exactly. There's no there's no doubt though that, that there's always been a, a perception that with single malt, if you can get up to like a double digit age statement you're in the right ballpark and obviously we 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 with the younger stuff we were like five six years away from that so yeah, yeah. so then you you didn't end up dealing with Glenglassa that long before the, no that's the, that's the right company was, was sold yeah really only, only another another three years after that there before uh, yeah and again you talk about things that come out of the blue um that that was we had we had never planned that, that, that i mean i don't know what the plan was but there never been a plan saying right we're gonna we're gonna get these to a certain level and sell them on, um, and I think you can see from what my dad's done since that his idea was not to sail off into the sunset. He always mm-hmm. wanted to be working with a distillery, and his his biggest concern about selling uh, the Ben Riot company would have been can I can I go and buy another distillery and stay in the game? Okay, uh, especially given what we'd said about availability of distilleries becoming more difficult sure. and, and the, the the price to purchase one becoming higher and higher sure. so yeah it, it, he'd always wanted to continue working in that area so as i say the plan had never been like sell but sometimes things happen mm-hmm. and you know out of the blue well so we're so we're gonna leave that story there okay if if you ever hook me up with your dad's contact information, maybe we'll have a conversation with him about Glenallachy, but we're not going to ask you any questions about Glenallachy. I, 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 don't, I don't know too much about it, to be honest. Now we're only focusing on, on Alistair Walker, who then, in 2016, you were finally successful. You didn't have a job in the whiskey industry. I Yeah, that's right. You're right. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, I did it. I did it. And then, and then I didn't have a job in the whiskey industry for about 14 months. Uh-huh. So, so, and then after that 14 months, was that you coming back with the independent bottling yeah, seed? I, I had, when I, when I left, so I, I left, I left Ben Riek November, 2016 and I, 
I really had no idea what I was going to do next. I hadn't, I had, I had thought about, like, I like, I like beer. I like my beer. I thought about getting into brewing. I know nothing about making beer. <laughs> and also the more I looked at, at, at the beer industry, I thought there's, there's, there's a couple of companies, won't mention any names, who have been incredibly successful. There's... On the crafty side, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's hundreds of thousands of brewers who... I mean, uh, what's the best way to put it? It's not easy. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a very competitive market. Yeah, quite saturated at this point. Very saturated. And I thought, you know what? It's not, it's not, that's that's not what I want to get into. Yeah, but I, t- I took a bit of time out and then I thought, you know, but whiskey, I was missing the industry. I was missing the social side of it. You know, I was still going along to a few festivals as a, as a punter and still getting to speak to, you know, friends uh-huh. from other distillers and whatnot. But... I wasn't part of it. Uh-huh. Uh, so then I thought, I started really 2000, 2018, January, I kind of decided to look at independent bottling. And you, you know this yourself because you, you, you do independent bottling. <laughs> but the options, and there weren't really options other than that where, you know, and we've talked about this earlier today, you look at buying a distillery, okay, you need a seriously big checkbook yeah build a distillery from scratch again plenty of money plus how much time have you got <laughs> yeah before anything comes back um and i take my hat off to anyone that does that because that's a serious commitment in terms of time and financially and whatnot so like i say good luck to everyone that's doing that and i that is that is you're really in it for the long 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 term there so you know good on you um i'm not that patient uh so I thought, you know what, independent bottling. But I was well aware of the fact that, you know, in the industry, whether you're a distiller or an independent bottler or, or whatever, you know, everybody talks about stock all the time. Mm-hmm. And I was aware of the fact that stock, the general chat was stock, stock's tight, no one's selling, it's becoming more expensive, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, before I get into this, I'm going to go and speak to some people just to make sure I can actually get some stock. Smart. So I spent about three months doing that. And, uh, you know, there were there were some meetings where I, I got a cup of coffee and that was pretty much it. Um, but it's always nice to get a meeting. Um, how the, not quite how the mighty have fallen, but it just makes me chuckle because I remember Josh and I yep. walking into your office for the very first time. Absolutely. Having a cup of coffee with you. And that was all. <laughs> <laughs> and you were like, I see what you boys are doing. Maybe we can work on something. Karma. <laughs> Karma. Yeah, I mean, I, I said to you before. Welcome to the dark side. Game, gamekeeper turned poacher. And it's funny because after that three-month period, I came out of that thinking it's not going to be easy to get stock, but it's not impossible. And the only way to really find out is to just crack on and and do it. Mm -hmm. And what is interesting is that I ended up getting stock from sources that were not the ones that I thought originally. (laughs) So, yeah, it was was worth doing that little three-month exercise. And it just, it gave me, confidence is too strong a word, but maybe hope. Belief. Belief, (laughs) aye, something. So yeah, so, but, and I said that was last year, um, but I had to then go ahead and get the company set up and you have to get a document from HMRC called a WOGAR, which is not straightforward. Um, Basically allows you to buy 
whiskey and, and hold it under bond and they don't just hand them out. It's a fairly rigorous process to get approved for such a thing and it mm-hmm. doesn't happen overnight. But once you get that, that that without that, I, I wouldn't have been able to do what I'm doing. And got that summertime last year. That meant I could go out and start buying some stock. I, I should have really... I had intended to release product last year, but in hindsight, that was that was I was getting way ahead of myself. Um, never moves at that speed. We never. always joke about moving at the speed of Scotland. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. If you think it's going to happen this year, just change all your plans. Make it next year. Absolutely, take the pressure off. It uh, it'll save your hair going the same color as mine. So indeed, uh, to be avoided. Um, so the name, infrequent flyers. Yeah, obviously. For guys in the whiskey industry who are traveling constantly, we're all frequent flyers. Yeah, I saw the name, I saw the label, I love it, absolutely love it. Where did your inspiration come from for infrequent flyers? I, I, it's one of about a hundred names that I'd written down. Every time, every time a, a name popped into my head, I would email it to myself and I, I, I put them all together. I was talking to the guy that was designing my labels, and he said, "Look, we really need to." finalize the name so that the label kind of... It's like naming a kid. There's so uh, much pressure. Oh, I'm just ignore that. Um, sorry, the phone's going, uh, which is unusual. Man <laughs> that never happens. I think what cast they could be offering you right now. Uh, unlikely. <laughs> so we narrowed in. We, we, we sat down and actually went through it and we came down to a short list of about five or six and then he'd kind of gone away and come up with some designs that to assist in the final process. But the actual name, uh, there's, there's a few different stories about the name. Okay. Um, but the one I'm going to tell today, <laughs> I can't even remember if this is true or not, but uh, we did, it's, it's, it's funny what you refer to like people traveling a lot in the industry. Mm-hmm. I, I used to go and do these, these especially the, I used to look after the States and we used to work with a company called Price Imports, who was our, our importer. They became anchor mm-hmm. uh, later on. And we we also, as well as representing uh, Ben Reick at the time, they also looked after Springbank and Duncan Taylor. And they also had their own, uh, they used to make their own whiskey uh, in San Francisco, Old old Potrero. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah and, the, and they the had pre-prohibition he- he- rye. And they had Hirsch, Hirsch as well. Oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah. So what we used to do, we used to go to the States for a week at a time and we'd do, we'd do these roadshows uh, with, you know, the three Scottish companies and the one American one. And we'd we'd go from like city to city, and we'd 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 travel during the day, and then we'd do like an event at night, a like a lot of mini whiskey fest, just just on our products, um, and then sometimes we'd be there for whiskey fest or or, or whiskey jubilee, mm-hmm. or you know, Thank you. we did a lot of different name drop there. Uh, you know, we used to do a lot of these events, and but it's it's hard, it's quite hard when you're on the road all the time, and you know, we we'd always go out and have a few drinks after the whatever event it was and never feel great the following day and have to go in a car or, or on a, you know. And I remember saying, you know, people that travel a lot get obsessed with the, the loyalty programs and like, oh, are you a gold card or a silver or whatever? Yep. And I remember thinking, my ambition is to become the, the poorest quality card. Oh, well done. You can get, because that means that I am not spending my entire life on, on planes. So well I always done. wanted to become an infrequent flyer. Beautiful. Which uh, <laughs> I, the, the irony is that by doing this, I, I might end up having to get on a few airplanes again. Yes, you will. I mean, I'm trying not to. But people like you to go to the market. 
So try not to get a job in the whiskey industry and try not to be on planes. I know. I'm not doing well. You're over two. Yeah, well done, I mate. Know, I know. I'm glad you're successful being over two. I know, I know. It's I'm consistent. <laughs> it's a good state to be in. So a couple of questions come to my mind. You're you're clearly a, a fledgling independent bottler, a new independent bottler on the scene, but you're also Alistair Walker, Ben Rhea, Glendrona, Glenglassa fame, uh, and over two decades in the industry, you're not just walking in a door to sell your product and they're saying, Ali who? You're coming into this as a known commodity. Are you seeing some of that crossover from what you were able to build with the three distilleries coming into you now having your own independent bottling company? Yes and no. I think where, where it's been, where the, where the 20 years and whatnot has been helpful is that because I worked in the, the selling side of the business, I've got relationships with customers in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's that been helpful. You know, I, I'm not saying they all jump on board, but there's certainly been a few that have engaged with me quite readily and Mm -hmm. and easily. Um, I mean, a couple of the guys I'm dealing with contacted me. Nice. Because they, even before I was up, you know, with product, they had, uh, you know, heard through the grapevine and they'd been in touch saying, look, when you're you're ready with something to sell, give us a shout. Fantastic. And also on the other side of it, and I, I wasn't, there is another side to the industry that I wasn't really involved in the stock side of it that I am now trying to be more involved in. Uh, and there's certainly, there's meetings that I have been able to get. They may not even come to anything, but even just getting across the threshold mm-hmm. would have been difficult if I was just Joe Bloggs. I don't, you know, if I had come to this cold from another industry and, and, and you know, didn't know who these people were. Um, so there's no doubt that opens a few doors um, and certainly, and even on the consumer side of it, you know, we, we used to go out and do loads of whiskey festivals mm-hmm. and then people get to know you personally. Mm-hmm. And that also, you know, people, when people buy into whiskey, it's not just about whiskey, they buy into the people. Yep, absolutely. So if you've got a relationship there, you've got a chance that, you know, consumers are going to, oh, what are you up to now? Let's try a bit of that or, you know, so. Yep. So did I miss the downside? Uh, yeah. Do you know? Do you know what the downside is? The, the downside is actually. I mean, I'm just doing this on my own. Uh, ah, okay. I don't. I don't have. I didn't actually get into this to spend a lot of time on my own. <laughs> I am not. I'm not great company with myself. Um. So I'd miss the kind of daily banter with my colleagues because okay. I don't. I don't have any. Um. I don't. I don't have anyone to fight with, which. Anyone that's worked with me will tell you is a great loss. Um, so yeah, it's not. There's a lot of kind of time on your own, which is dangerous. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that open ended. Um, what do you want to be known for as an independent bottler? I think it's simple. Um, I think you want to get to a point where people just trust your bottlings that there's going to be an element of quality there. It's very important to resist the urge to get a product out to the market quickly just to get a return on it. Mm-hmm. Don't don't put something out just for the sake of it. If you can afford to wait until something's ready, whether it needs more time or whether it needs a, a, a different cask to be reacted into, whatever it may be, 
these things do take a bit of time, as you know. So the important thing is is to go for that kind of badge of, of quality so that people trust what you're doing. I don't, you know, it's hard to, somebody asked me, another independent bottler asked me when I, I told them I was doing a very established one, said, what's your point, what's your going to be your unique point of oh, difference? There you go. Okay, yeah, and I was yeah. like, well, yeah. how do you do that in whiskey? I mean, there's, you're, you are limited to what you can do. Yeah. And everyone's doing this, the same sort of stuff. Fact. Yeah. So I don't think you can, you can't come along to a, a, an industry that's been about for 500 years and suddenly be that different. Mm-hmm. What you need to just make sure is that you're good. That's that's all I could see on that one. But but I definitely think trust is such a huge part of it, and and as much as you know, you've got the trust from your time with the three distilleries and how you did sales, and really how you built your own reputation within the industry, and, and you've always been very kind to us, and we've always enjoyed seeing you. And so when Joshua and I made that transition from that blogging, writing, reviewing world, trust was something we were able to bring with us where people had been buying bottles based on our recommendations. Yeah. And now here we were bottling and selling to them based on our palates. And so I, I really see where trust is so hugely important. It's also a very vocal industry with very vocal consumers, especially on the single cask yep. end of things. And you don't get to hide. You you get one mistake, you maybe get a couple of mistakes you don't get a lot of opportunities. It's 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 very interesting because I I had never when I when I worked at at, at Ben Reek, we would put product out and I, I I it never it never concerned me what what people thought about it. I always trusted what my old man was doing. Mm-hmm. So you know there were some whiskies I liked better than others. Sure, but I was like fine. When it's your company and you're picking, now, now I've not made any of these whiskies. Yep, correct. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the distiller. Yep. So, I, to one hand, I can say, oh, it's nothing to do with me. <laughs> but, but ultimately, I've I've said I've picked these whiskies and said, right, I think these are good enough to go in a bottle. Yep. So when you then go out to a whiskey festival, you're basically saying to folk, what do you think of my judgment? And then suddenly you're there to be judged. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I did my first festival in Berlin about three weeks ago. It's the first time I stood in front of a, a crowd with all nine bottles on the table. And suddenly I was like, oh my goodness, uh, people are going to come up and tell me whether they think these are good, bad or indifferent, you know? Yep. Uh, and, and suddenly you start thinking, all oh, right, I mean, I like them, but that doesn't mean everybody else is going to like them. So, Yeah, it's... Well, and then, then imagine we've got and we've talked about this previously on the podcast, now imagine you're established in one country with your picks, and then you start looking out at these other countries, and that's kind of why I asked you the question earlier about did you have key markets where different things were successful? It's interesting. I would come back to that because one yeah. of my... We, we, we were phenomenally successful in Taiwan with Glendronic, and I'm sure they still are. Mm-hmm. And Taiwan is a market that loved Sherry Cass McAllen. Mm-hmm. Um so if you if you went in there with a, a really heavily sherried single malt, you would probably do pretty pretty well there. And, and that's the kind of the funny thing you know we did a we had a Clinlish twenty three year old in sherry that has done great. In you guys, you guys bottled that, yeah, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> U.S. only. We then brought it over to the malt stock that we did uh, in September, and the Europeans in the room went bananas for the 23-year-old Clinlish and Sherry. So that was kind of an eye-opener for us, doing good, great, not unhappy with it in the United States, 
But holy moly, if we get another one of those and take it to Europe, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, that's going to kill. So you, you saw a better reception for a sherry cask whiskey in Europe than you were getting in the States? Yes. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really bananas for it. Meanwhile, we had a Clinlish nine-year-old in First Fill Bourbon, also US retail exclusive gone bananas in the United States, absolutely bananas. Brought that over to malt stock, did good, did well, people liked it. But but it was the inverse of the 23-year-old sherry cask. And so now Joshua and I, as we are expanding into UK and Europe, are now starting to ask that question of, well, we like our picks, we pick for our palate, we've been very lucky with the United States, now how will it resonate when we yep. launch them into Europe? And then as we go further afield. And so it's it's interesting to hear you, after coming out of three distilleries, now asking yourself that question, how will these be received? I know I like them enough to put them into a bottle. Yeah, yeah. It, can, yeah, it's, it sounds it's a little bit of a wacky business. Um, so, it's, so it's always a pleasure to speak with you. And I learned so much from you. I was even quoting you back to yourself uh, in the car earlier today. Which I can remember. <laughs> well, you know, when you just say so many interesting, sophisticated, ah, you're nuanced too, you're, things. You're too kind. You just lose track of you're them too, all after too, I know, I, sh- I should write them down. <laughs> to email yourself them as well. Um, you, you were incredibly insightful for where you saw single malt going, single malt producers going, and what you saw over the, you know, since 2011, the eight years uh, that, that we've known each other and, and how we've seen the industry grow. What do you see looking into the future for independent bottlers? Oh, there's a question. Uh, it, it's, it's been an interesting time and in that I, there's, there's been quite a few new independent bottlers, me being one of them, that have appeared uh, even just in the UK in the last two or three years. Um, and you have, the, the more you look into who else is out there doing it, there's, there's loads of guys out in Germany doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously there's yourselves in the States and there's other people in the States doing it. There's more independent bottlers out there than you think. The challenge at the moment is that there's so many aspects to this that make it difficult. You you have distillers who are seeing this never never seen before wave of popularity for single malt that's putting pressure on their stock, which means that they're releasing less stock out to the market for the likes of us to pick up. Meanwhile, there's more and more independent bottlers out there trying to get access to this ever-reducing pile of stock. Mm-hmm. So... The, the, the demand is outstripping the availability and uh, inevitably the, the prices are going up. And then what you're you're also seeing less and less of are the big names. Uh, I've, I don't have many big names at all in my inventory. Um, now, what's a big name? That's subjective. People will have different terminologies for a big name. But, you know, if you think about things like Springbank and McAllen and Brooklady, anything from Isla, um, I, I could go on and on. Any yeah. closed distillery. Yeah. You know, there are there are some, these are the golden nuggets, if you like. They, they're just, unless you have unbelievably deep pockets, they're, they're not there. So the big challenge for independent bottlers is is getting stock. I suppose the benefit that some of the more established ones have is that they've, they've been around for a long time and they have stock that they've bought over decades, you know, at lower prices possibly and better availability. 
going forward though I think everybody faces the the stock challenges mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I don't know how to answer the question because I, I, I'm not sure I think independent borthlers you know the, the longer I've spent in the industry and obviously I would say this because I am one now but <laughs> I, I've kind of found myself over the last few years wandering around whiskey festivals being drawn more towards the independent bottler stands because you never know what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's a lot of different unusual things, lesser known distilleries that you've maybe never tried before or things at ages that you might not expect. So I find them, I think what they're bringing to the industry is is something that's really interesting. The challenge will be continuing to get access to, to good, good stock. Again, this is why I love talking to you. I think an independent bottler can be more fleet of foot yep. than a, than somebody who owns bricks and mortar and is building a known line. But as we've always said, you can't have one without the other. And and if you're a producer who has your line, isn't it exciting to to charge up your fan base with a cask that goes out to an independent bottler, right? Isn't it great when you get to see a different side of a distillery through the lens of an independent bottler. But as we always say, that independent bottler different side doesn't make any sense if you don't know the standard releases from that same distillery. Yeah. And so I like to think of us pinging off one another to excite consumers. And, and I'm with you when you walk around a whiskey festival, what's that independent bottler got on the table? What's that independent bottler got on the table? Especially when you've got producers who have got established lines yeah, you, you, on the table. The likelihood is you, you know most of what the, the producers, the distillers themselves are going to have. And they might have the, 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 the occasional uh, new release mm -hmm. or single cask or mm -hmm. whatever, but you, you kind of know their core range is going to be there. You know what that is. Um, Independent bottlers range will, will change almost every festival you go to, depending on what they're they're, they're releasing. Because exactly. by the very nature of what they bring out, they don't last long, and yep. then they're gone and they're replaced by by something completely different. Yep. So, yeah, and, and then Mark Watt has always said at Cadenheads, on our end of the business, the consumer is is wonderfully disloyal. It's why Joshua and I with Single Cast Nation can have a podcast where we talk to other independent bottlers. When I saw your announcement, I was excited to come and talk to you yep. about your independent bottler. I'm glad someone you, was. <laughs> you, you, know, you and I are not competition here because as you release a particular cask, a fan of that distillery will come and pick up that cask from you as we release maybe the same distillery, a different age or a different cast type, yeah, I think, I think they'll that, come by from us. I think that's one of the things too. People are people are buying whiskey, uh, bottlers are buying whiskey now, but then they're going and doing something with it. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not just putting it straight into a bottle, they're, they're re-racking it. Um, so you're going to get all these different variations from the, the same distillery. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it, you know, I, I love buying from independent bottlers, tasting from independent bottlers, talking and learning from other independent bottlers. I really like this side of the industry. I think there's plenty of room at the moment for all of us. Um, we'll see how that goes. I think your example of the brewing industry is a really smart one because we are seeing saturation in the United States. You're seeing saturation in the United Kingdom. And now it's where is your particular niche within that industry? Yep. Uh, and you obviously we're dealing with bottles that are more expensive. We're dealing with casks 
that are taking longer to mature. There, there are still some, some differences there, but there are a lot of independent bottlers coming into the industry every single day. And I hope coming to realise that it's not as easy as it looks on paper. It's not, and of course, what what may happen is that some people might get into it and then realise, actually, it's not that straightforward and I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> Absolutely. I really wish, Jason, that I was part of the conversation with you because it's probably... In my heart, you were. Were you? In my I mean, heart. I mean, was I? <laughs> were you? Were you in your heart, me, us, we? Um, Beautiful, be best. <laughs> be best. Hashtag. But because it's been a few years since I, I've seen Allie, and we've been emailing here and there, you know, over the past few years. Hey, let me know when you're in Glasgow and let's get a drink. And I've dropped the ball here and there, and we, we've just never... Uh, the good news is we're drinking with them in Glasgow later this month. I know, and I'm very <laughs> excited for that. <laughs> Your but, wish is my command, Joshua. But but the so firstly, thank you, Allie, and and I look forward to seeing you again in January. But I had a question for you, Jason. Did you, while you were with Allie, did you get a chance to taste any of his bottlings? We, you know, um, we didn't. Because or did I was you pass driving? on those two because? I did. You're I like, did. I just, I, anytime Ali Walker offers me whiskey, I say no to it. I did. I did. We've now reached a stage in Scotland mm. where nobody who is driving a car will put even one drop of alcohol over their lips. Zero tolerance. Yep. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing state of affairs in Scotland now. And so given that I had the car, given that I'd come down from Elgin, mm. given that I still had to go park at my hotel, um, it, it wasn't even on offer. It's yeah. not... It's not a thing that people yeah. think of now if you have a set of car keys on you. And I would have loved, loved, loved to have tasted his selections. Uh, and it's it's just no longer feasible in Scotland. No, it, it, it makes sense. But I remember looking at the, the lineup. You'd sent mm. me something. And there were some interesting selections in the lineup that you'd sent me. So for those of you who are, who are living in UK, Europe, take a look, look for infrequent flyers. You know, as you heard from Ali himself, he's been in the industry for, for 23 years and he knows his whiskeys and uh, I'm sure his picks are wonderful. Yeah, I was I was more hopeful of really bumping into him at a festival, mm. maybe even seeing him in Glasgow for Glasgow's Whiskey Festival, and instead he was over in Belgium. There was oh. a festival the exact same day, and so he was in Belgium uh, instead of in Scotland. Oh, so that's it was, right. It was a shame I didn't, because I would have tasted them like crazy, because I was not driving at Glasgow's Whiskey Festival. I picked up the car 24 full hours later. Wow. Uh, because that's also the next part of the zero tolerance is the police will also stop you the following morning and see if you've got alcohol in your system from the night before. Smart. So if you So if you go in the Randan and you get a little bit of booze in you, mm. you can still get in big trouble the following Randan. morning. My dad always said that to me. Uh, when I was leaving the house, he's like, okay, you, you sure you're okay for driving? I'm like, that's the next morning. He said, no, they will, they will also stop you for that. So wow. yeah, the, the whole, the whole situation 
is a is is a thing. Before we pivot away from from Ali and move on to just a, a quick couple of items, and then we'll return to Ali for for closing words. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to say, oh. speaking with him. Wow, this is a build up. Sitting with him. Wow. Okay. I love, love, love that the three of us are now in the same boat. And he always gave us his time and his respect. He did. And as much as we had that success very, very early on by getting a Benria 17-year-old peated whiskey uh, single-cast bottling, unfortunately, that part of the relationship got pulled Mm. Uh, and we weren't able to do future casks because i think they were working on their own single cask program well they you're correct you know the benriach and glendronach had their annual single cask program and then not too far into our relationship with them they were preparing to get those distilleries sold off to Brown Foreman. So I think there were a few elements in play that that unfortunately made single casks unavailable to us. Agreed wholeheartedly. But what always struck me is when we reached out to Ali, Mm -hmm. he would always make time for us. We always went by the office. We always talked, what's the latest with Single Cast Nation? What's the latest with Ben Rhea, Glendronach, ultimately Glenglassa? And he, he always had a cup of coffee and a biscuit for us. And I, you know, we always had that joke about, it's just nice to see you, to get the know in person. Yeah. See you see you again next year. <laughs> That's right. For another cup of coffee and another no. I forgot and- about that. <laughs> that. That we had a standing date of, we're going to be in Scotland. <laughs> We'd love to get a no from you. Do you have extra coffee? Yeah. <laughs> and he, he, never, he never blew us off. He never no. downplayed it. He no. never ignored us. He never blanked our emails. He never told us, oh, sorry, lads, I'm just too busy this time. We'd always stop by and we'd always see him. And I am genuinely excited. I said it in the interview with him. I'm genuinely excited to see what he does. Hmm. And if there's any way we can help him, if there's any way he can help us, we are now, the three of us, in the same boat. And, And even though he was a producer and we were an independent bottler, I always felt like we had a relationship mm. where the three of us were looking out for one another. And and the fact that that continues now, really exciting. And you and I have said it many, 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 many times. Uh-huh. I'll say it many, many, many more times. This is a great industry. People try to lift one another up. They do. In this industry. Yep. Yeah. And and I absolutely feel like we have that with Ali. And to the extent that we will see him later this month, we will drink with him later this month. We None of the three of us will be driving when we have that get together later this oh, month. That's going to be wonderful. I'm really, really, really looking forward to that one. And if he wants to bring samples that I can say yes to tasting, I will say yes to tasting. Maybe it'll go a small way towards Joshua forgetting history from what is now nine years ago. Ali, I really want you to to take note 
This is your first opportunity to share a dram with Jason. You've known us for a good nine years. I think you and I have actually shared a drink. But Jason has been uh, living uh, with with a nanny state mentality. And uh, and this time he's going to put the car keys in a fishbowl. <laughs> You're obsessed with fishbowls. <laughs> obsessed and, with uh, fishbowls. And we will gladly, happily share a dram with you. I'm, I'm just really for the, looking forward to that. Just for the record, I did dram with them when I saw them in Greensmouth. Nah, if, if <laughs> vid- video pictures after, or it didn't happen after I parked the car. So, um, so let, let's cover some quick business and then we'll pivot right back to Ali and then we'll we'll call it a day for because because we have from Ali his what he's most excited about exactly in the industry. exactly yeah, and it's a great that. answer. You're, you're going to enjoy okay. this one. Okay, we we don't have much to get to here. Thankfully, um, I mean, we definitely the have the reminder about the mailbag episode. So that's the number one thing. Can I, do you want to talk about, no, you don't talk about it because you don't know how to properly relay how to communicate with us. You get confused by dot coms, dot govs, dot. I'm relaying it right now. No. Just not saying it out loud. Our mailbag episode is going to drop in February, as, as, as many of you know, and this will be our Fourth annual? Third annual? Third. Fourth. Third? Third. Third. But we're in season three now. Oh, we did. didn't have a mailbag episode. So <laughs> the new millennium. Our first episode. No, we did not. Our first episode was not a mailbag episode. So kind of like the new decade starting in 2021. <laughs> I get it now. Just like when you have your 10th year. It's not your 10th anniversary. Your 10th anniversary is really in your 11th year. I get it. Uh, yep. Allow me to just continue sipping a fine Christmas yep. ball by <laughs> the Whiskey Exchange. Uh, yeah, which I am drinking as well. This is the 2018 Christmas malt, which is a 17-year-old from a very famous Glen. And we'll leave it at that. Um, so like Jason had alluded to, and as I am talking about, we're going to have our mailbag episode in February. And we've been receiving... A bunch of emails and Instagram in. messages. And you know what's yep. you know what's really got me excited? Is you know, we always get good questions, but this is the first year we where we've received multiple questions from those in the industry who have spent a longer time, a longer period of time within the industry, and they're asking us questions. <laughs> That yeah. kind of wows me, um, and and I feel we, we really need to yeah. step up but our like, game to answer those ones. Let's see what shite these two will spout over this well-established <laughs> industry question. Uh, well, we're here. We uh, will not disappoint. I can guarantee you that much. Yeah. So whether you're you're in the industry or not within the industry, uh, we do welcome your mailbag questions. We want to get to as many as possible. If you've asked questions in the past and have others you wish to um, pose to us, please do. If you've never asked us a question, please do. If you feel embarrassed or you're concerned, not embarrassed, but if you're concerned a question has already been asked and you don't want to ask that again, go ahead, uh, ask us again. There's a good chance we will have forgotten that that question What's there's, asked a, us? there's a very good chance we'll have a different answer. <laughs> That's very it's, true. It's a crapshoot, you know. <laughs> Hell, if you want to go back and listen, you can set us up. 
You can purposely ask the same question again mm. and see if we spout the same nonsense mm-hmm. or new nonsense. Oh, new nonsense. Yeah, you know. How but, do they how do they send that in, Joshua? So, first off, there is a deadline. You have to get us your questions in by January 31st, which by the way is a Tuesday. It's actually holy crap. Um it's a Tuesday and it no, wait, that's December. I take that back. <laughs> So <laughs> and, it's, and it's New Year's Eve. It is Holy New- moly. Merry Christmas. It's New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas malt's going down well. Uh, get us your questions in by January 31st, which is a Friday. And uh, the way to get us those questions, you can email us questions at one nation under You can send us an Instagram message. Our Instagram handle is at One Nation Under Whiskey. You can always tweet at us, and we are at One Nation Whiskey. And then finally, uh, you can send us a Facebook message. Just go to Facebook, either on your phone or your com- or your computer uh, console, as as I think the kids say nowadays. The kids do say that. The kids say that now. Um, and, you know, just go to the search bar and look for One Nation Under Whiskey and you can message us through our Facebook page or our Facebook group. Uh, key thing to remember is whiskey is always spelled without the E when it comes to us. Always without. Uh, so that's the way to get in touch with us. And we really, really, really welcome your questions. And we will do our very best to get to as many questions as we can and answer them to the best of our ability. Yeah, it's a fun episode. I look forward to it each year, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because I'm always curious what the what the listeners are curious about. We cover a bunch of things in, in our episodes. What are we leaving out? What's another aspect that we could yeah. be considering yeah. in the interviews we conduct mm-hmm. with the people that we're meeting and chatting with? So yeah. I, I love it when the questions come in. And the last thing that I want to add here is, you know, th- this is New Year's Day. Right, people are making New Year's resolutions. Some mm. of them have had them already. Some of them are waking up with hangovers and are like, "Oh, oof, resolution! I'm never doing that again." Type of thing. But I, I want people to make a New Year's resolution here. I want you to to resolve to uh, giving us a five star rating on iTunes. <laughs> that would be a wonderful resolution. You don't have to leave a comment, though comments are always welcome, but getting good reviews on iTunes helps our visibility. And if you want to share, if you're enjoying this podcast, if you want to share it with other people, you could do so by giving a review and that helps us be a bit more visible. Or if you've got friends, family, mothers, sisters, brothers, cousins, and you think that they might like our podcast, please do share it with us. We want to get into the ears of as many people as we can. And and we thank you in advance for doing us that kindness. Agreed, Joshua. I don't disagree with anything you just said. Hmm. Wow. I want to <laughs> quickly mention a longtime listener and supporter of ours. Hmm. We had some fun at the tail end of, of 2019 with Philippe Fanavon. Philippe Fanavon. <laughs> That's the very, very Philippe man. Philippe Fanavon. And, and you and I 
couple of times, had a bit of fun with that little song, and each time there was a little voice in the back of my head that said, this might not be appropriate. This this might not be well received. Maybe he and, hates this. And, and if any <laughs> listeners have shared with us those doubts, I am here to tell you this day, and I am I am so relieved to share this, Philippe did reach out to say he loves our silly little song about Philippe Van Avon. Not so much, it, of course he loves it, but apparently... <laughs> His girlfriend loves it even more, which 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 is very it makes me very happy because <laughs> there's a bit of zing in there and I and I oh, like a bit of zing. That that makes me so happy that we got away with that. Yeah. <laughs> can, can I let, let me let me add one last thing and then we need to get over to Allie. Yes, we will. Yes, yes. For indeed. his what he's most excited about. Um, I'm going to share now, Jason. You know about this already. And I'm going to share this with the listeners without giving any detail because I really want to protect the person who shared this with me. So I woke up the other morning to a wonderful message mm-hmm. from, from someone who, who's going through a really rough time with a loved one of, uh, with a loved one who, who she herself is going through a very tough time and, and, and they're working together to overcome it. And I, I imagine as I'm talking about this, the, the person in question may know that I'm, that I'm talking about him, but he, he sent this message saying, Hey guys, I'm, my wife and I are going through X and I've got to tell you, your podcast provides the escape that I need to, to get through this. She's going to get through this. She's going to fight. She's going to kick its butt, blah, blah, blah. But thank you for, for being that little bit of escape. And uh, you, you know that I'm really easy to tears and I'm getting there now. Getting but, a little clamped. Um, but to be that tiny little escape for someone... Um, we have a good amount of fun here and, and we talk to fun people, but if we can provide that, just even that, uh, the weakest of smiles to someone, then, then we're doing something even bigger than we ever expected. So, and I think that's what your jokes normally generate is the weakest of smiles. So I think <laughs> this is right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I agree with you. It's I've I talk a lot about the connection that I feel with our listeners, mm. and to know that our nonsense really resonates with someone in a, mm-hmm. in a difficult in a dark time, I, it gives me chills. I've got chills right now. You're verklempt. I've got chills. Mm. This really means a lot to us, mm-hmm. and and we are absolutely pooling for that couple mm-hmm. uh, in this dark time. Most importantly, now you've got chills. Are they multiplying? Are you losing control? <laughs> Is it electrifying? I do not have a good grease comeback for you, so do mm. not expect one. Anyway, 
Anyway, <laughs> so that's, that's again, it speaks to the type of relationship, yeah. right? Here we are yeah. making a fun little ditty with Philippe Fanavong's name. Here we are being a little tiny momentary release for somebody in a dark place. Here we are soliciting emails for the mailbag episode so yeah. we can have that connection. You know, in our business, you and I have collaborated as much as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. We love collaborating. We love relationships. We love conducting the interviews and seeing our yeah. industry friends. Yep. The the listeners are as much a part of our industry as the producers, the distillers, agreed. the warehouse. Yeah, agreed. That, that we meet. So this yeah. really means the world to us. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. I, I toast all the listeners and wish them the very best for a... The best 2020 that can be. So with, with that in mind, as we're looking toward the future, as we're looking toward uh, th- good things moving forward, I'm really curious to hear what Ali Walker is most excited about moving forward. Perfection. Will we let it run and get out of here? You know what? Let's, let's do that. Let's Give let's, him the final floor. Let's do that, Jason. So... To, to all of our listeners, uh, to you, Jason, to all yep. of our industry partners and all of our friends, uh, here's to a wonderful 2020, the last year to close out this decade. Uh, we can have that conversation in another day uh, as to why this why 2020 is closing out a decade and I will die in that goddamn hill. Um, <laughs> to you, your family, to Jess... <laughs> To, to listeners, yes. to everybody in the industry who took time for us in 2019, and to those who will take time for us in 2020. Mm. I'll see you in the next episode, brother. See you there, brother. Chin chin. Two chins. Philippe Van Evon. So let's get you out of here on this. What's the thing you're most excited about with in, uh, infrequent flyers right now? Uh, well, one thing I'd probably like to touch on, when you've run your own thing, your own project, you, you live with it 24-7 and you spend a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and I've, I've come to realise that this comes down to three very, there's three things that I need to do to make this work. One is I need to buy stock. Two is I need to do a lot of wood management, and three is I need to I need to get my stuff into bottles and out to the market. That everything else is just like white noise round about it. Um, and what one of one of you know, I've got a lot of things set up now that I'm not going to see the benefit of for quite some time. But mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned my 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 old man earlier on. I'm actually doing a little bit of, I, I have, I'm actually one of their better customers in that I'm, I'm doing a lot of storage of casks up at Glenallachie. Oh, nice. Now, uh, to kind of give you a very long answer here. I love um, it. About, just before the summer started, I had a look at my stock and realised that my stock was sitting in a total of 28 different warehouses throughout Scotland, which when you go to bottle casks like my first batch was nine casks and they came from five or six different locations suddenly it's a bit of a nightmare Uh in terms of the logistics of that and the cost of that so i 
I decided it'd be nice if I could reduce the number of locations I was using. But there was a second part to it. I'm doing a lot of re-racks and, and wood finishes. And I'm doing a lot of that work with, with Billy. Mm-hmm. So he's going out and sourcing the the secondary cast, if you like, you know, the sherry cast, the port cast, the Madeira, the virgin oak, uh, James Pepper rye, these, these type of things. Nice. Things that it's easier for him to get than me. He sells them to me. I mean, he's not daft. He does. <laughs> he makes a margin. Um, but they, I can also get the re-rack operations done up at Glenallachie. So I decided, partly from a logistical point of view and partly from a, a, a kind of ongoing re-rack program perspective, if I could get as much of my stock up to Glenallachie as possible. So I'm now, I now only have five warehouses that my stock is in. Very nice. And I'd say most of it's sitting at Glenallachie. And it means that any time I want to do a re-rack, it's already there. Smart. And also, uh, I'm just actually mentioned earlier today, uh, my second batch of casks has actually been bottled today. But with those eight casks, when they were shipped this time, they all came from one location. Man. Which hopefully when I get the transport invoice in for that will, will not be as painful as it, it was the first time round. Can't even imagine. <laughs> so there's, there's, that's, that's, I was really keen to get that in place. And it's so, this is where mentally it's challenging because you'll do a Iraq, then you need to really just go away and not think about those casks for quite a while. <laughs> Give them time. And I'm looking forward to getting some of those out. Uh, <laughs> But I can't exactly say when that will be. But I, I want to get. I want to get. I'm looking forward to probably the second half of next year when I can start bottling a few casks where I've actually had some influence exactly on the wood side of it. Yeah, you know, because up until this point, I've been bringing out casks that I I haven't done anything with. Yeah, I think they're they're good enough to go as they are, but. I want to get involved and start tinkering about with stuff. Um, so, and that's an ongoing process because one one of the things you cannot buy in this game is time. Yes. So if you want to start, if you want to do a re-rack, the sooner you can do it, the better. Yeah. Because you'll never get that time back. Yeah. There, there's a word in America that gives us the vapors. Uh, that word is rebottler, and we have never in our time as a company ever called ourselves rebottlers. And I think to hear you talk about having an influence, doing something, adjust the flavor, rework it, put out something interesting, is definitely getting more hands-on with the cask and getting to put Alistair Walker's imprint on that cask. Uh, I think is very smart, absolutely. And obviously, I've said to you over email, I've said to you in person, I'll say it to you on wax. We, Joshua and I, Single Cast Nation, wish you the very best of luck. Appreciate um, that. And we are excited to watch you come into our end of the pool. Uh, and if and there's fe- anything and we can do... And feel the pain. <laughs> and hear some of those no's. And if there's anything we can do to help in any way, please do reach out. Uh, and we certainly will not be afraid to reach out to you. Thanks Even very much. if it's a no, maybe we'll still get there's, to share a probably, cup of coffee. There's probably more chance we'll sell you a cask now. <laughs> You never know when you need a wee cash injection. Oh, it's on wax. That makes me happy. Um, thanks a million for sitting down today. No, it's thanks been for coming. absolute joy to talk to you and listen to you. I always love our conversations and getting one of them down on wax means a lot to us and I think means a lot to our listeners as Brilliant. well. So thanks ever so much, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
it's a new year, and I'm just here to make you happy. Mm. Some might say it's a new decade, and I'm here to make you happy. Well, it's, an, it's officially not a new decade. <laughs> We've had this conversation. Well, but by that, right? Like anything can be a decade. A decade is only ten years. You can define a decade however you want. You can, but if we're using the Gregorian calendar, and the Gregorian calendar, at least as far as AD goes, right, Audio Deo, it starts with year one. So if the calendar starts with year one, wouldn't a decade start with the year one, just like a millennium would start with no. year one? Don't shake your head no, because you know this. Is, you're, you're a philosophy professor. This is pure straight up math. <laughs> All right. The new but, millennium but the thing, was 2001, just like a new the, decade should be 2011. That's, a, that's only one series of measurements. If you think of somebody, oh, they've lived through their first four decades. Uh-huh. They didn't have to be born on any particular year to start counting decades. Yeah, you're getting a off decade topic, is only though. 10 no, years. No, you're get, yeah. Well, yes. If, if you want to use any measurement, yes, if you want to just apply 10 years to anything, that's totally fine. However, the calendar started at year one. So your first decade is com- your first decade is done at the very last day of the 10th year. The new decade starts on the 11th year. That's your new right. decade. Right. But what I'm saying is if you wanted to count the 20s as a decade, it could start from the first day of 2020 oh, and go all the way to the last day of 2029. You could do whatever you want to do. It doesn't mean it's right. You could do what you want to do. But that's what I'm saying. That's, that's exactly how people have defined it. If you want to define it like that, that's perfectly fine. I don't think we need to come along and be pedantic. So after all of this, you still yell at me for having... Well, I'll, I'll take any reason to yell at you. <laughs> uh, I don't need an invitation to do that. I, I think one time or maybe multiple times I said, <laughs> you know, something, something about being you know, ex- exactly 13 days away or some, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a new one. I had not heard that one before. Yes. Yes. <laughs> exactly 13 days. Some cat just pooped. Oh. <laughs> Makes my whiskey smell real weird. <laughs> I use that like hip cat. Like like somebody in your house you're just referring to? Some Some cat cat just pooped. Who are you, Duke Ellington, the ghost of Duke Ellington in the attic? Some some cat wearing a beret just stepped out of the kitty litter box room. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We always said that when we had a band on the road. Some cat just pooped. I can't take my whiskey. Do you think those, uh, those like zoot suit wearing scat saying uh, folk like in their 20s, like are they doing that? Well, first off, I don't think, my question was going to be, <laughs> did they do that in their 90s too? But I don't think any, any of them survived like the five years of heroin they did. Um, <laughs> but I'm trying to, cause, cause it's it, to be, uh, to be very clear here, I was thinking about our podcast and I realized I'm not using the old man voice nearly as much as I could or should be. So I wanted to squeeze away into doing like old man scat, 
but I'm afraid you to do it. Setting yourself up here. <laughs> yeah, I'm setting myself up. So, so I wrote a bit during the holiday here. During the weekend, I wrote a bit, and if you wouldn't mind indulging me, here's here's my sketch. <laughs>